Hello, everyone. This is Mark Perry from BuiltLean.com, and I have a very special guest joining me today on the phone, Dr. Christopher Scott. And just to give you a very short bio, which I'm sure is not going to do uh, Dr. Scott justice, but uh, Dr. Christopher Scott is an associate professor at the University of Southern Maine. Dr. Scott has been called a pioneer for his research focusing on the determination of energy expenditure for strength, speed, and power-related activities, both during and after exercise. He's been a professor of exercise physiology for over nine years and is the sole author of the five-star ranked textbook, A Primer for the Exercise and Nutrition Sciences, Thermodynamics, Bioenergetics, and Metabolism. So, Dr. Scott, I want to thank you very much for uh, your willingness to share your insights and your time today. No problem, Mark. Call me Chris. Okay. Thanks, Chris. So uh, I was hoping to kind of go into four sections uh, in this call. The first, starting out with uh, kind of an energy expenditure primer, uh, then talking a little bit more in depth about this concept of the afterburn effect, um, which I know your research is uh, really pivotal. Uh, third is discussing kind of the body composition implications of intense, intense anaerobic exercise, and then finally tying it all together with a kind of practical applications. So I guess to get started, um, I know it's a pretty rudimentary question for someone who wrote an entire book on it, but what is energy expenditure? Uh, primarily what we're talking about is that in order to survive, um, we have to supply ourselves with energy. They have to be, have the ability to perform work. And to do that requires energy, energy exchange from one form to another. So we eat food and essentially that food, the energy within the chemical bonds of that food is converted into a form um, that your cells can use to perform work like muscle contraction. And it is inefficient, unfortunately. We're not, uh, or maybe it's fortunate if we weren't inefficient, we'd probably be more overweight than we were. But um, it, it costs, if you will, to convert energy from one form to another, and that essentially is energy expenditure. Got it. Okay, and can you describe the difference between aerobic and anaerobic exercise? Yep. Uh, we're talking about the energy expenditure behind these as well. Uh, there are two formats of energy exchange, if you will, or steams might even be a better word. Um, one is one that uses oxygen, and this is called aerobic, and it's traditional exercise, I think. It's the way it's traditionally been studied by exercise physiologists, and it essentially boils down to long, slow distance, either running or cycling or something along those lines. So you're, you're typically asked to get your heart rate up for a period of time, like 30 minutes or so, three to five times per week. Um, this is cardiovascular work or aerobic work. And when we start getting into activities that involve strength, speed, and power, this is very intense physical work. And what that requires is energy exchange rapidly um, taking place in your muscle cells, and it really takes place so rapidly um, that oxygen uptake can't supply the energy demand. And so we have other avenues, another theme, if you will, and that's anaerobic energy expenditure. And essentially what happens is you're, you're breaking down glucose molecules faster than you can use oxygen for energy exchange. And what's formed as a byproduct of this is lactic acid. So this is what is referred to primarily as, you know, the main anaerobic energy pathway, if you will. 
And then there's, a, there's another format of anaerobic energy, which is, um, has a sort of strange twist to it, in that you have stored, in, in every cell in your body, and particularly your muscle cells, you have stored high-energy molecules, um, phosphocreatin and ATP, and they're very, very minimal amounts, but they enable you to perform, for example, one repetition maximum, two repetition maximum, really hard, intense sprinting for 40 yards or so. A vertical jump is another good example that uses these high-energy phosphates. That's also referred to as the anaerobic energy system, but the, the twist on it is, is that these phosphates or molecules are actually resynthesized in the recovery from exercise, and the recovery from exercise is all aerobic. So we say that you know, having these phosphocreatin and ATP molecules is the anaerobic energy system, but interestingly enough, they're actually resynthesized aerobically. So those are the two systems um, in anaerobic energy expenditure, and then what we started off with was the aerobic system that uses oxygen. Great. Uh, very well said. And so uh, how is the energy expenditure from aerobic exercise typically measured? Typically, it's measured with an oxygen uptake measurement. And, you know, when I, when I give talks, um, I typically start out every talk by, you know, really going back to the history or reminding people that energy expenditure, you know, the fact of the matter is we can't go into the cell, you know, each and every working skeletal muscle cell during exercise and determine how many of these high-energy phosphate molecules are actually being depleted. If we could, we would solve all our problems. Um, we, we don't measure energy expenditure. We estimate it. But we do estimate it with a measurement of oxygen consumption. Now, clearly, and it's been, this has been known for, um, in animals anyway, for well over 200 years and in humans for certainly 100 or so, and that is that the amount of heat that you give off, which is really a direct measure of energy expenditure, it is in relation to the amount of oxygen that you consume. The problem is, is that it's really, really difficult to measure heat loss, especially in large creatures like ourselves, you know, to, to house somebody in a container where you can measure their heat loss for an extended period of time. It's, it's quite unreasonable. But, but luckily, heat loss is proportional to the amount of oxygen we consume, and it's really easy to measure oxygen uptake. So if you were to step on a treadmill or a cycle ergometer, or a rowing machine or something along those lines, an elliptical trainer in a gym, and it asks you to pump in or uh, place your weight into the, uh, the computer, and, and it'll give you an energy expenditure in calories. That is basically coming from a laboratory somewhere that measured somebody who was actually consuming oxygen while performing that activity. So that's very straightforward. You just measure their oxygen uptake. It, it's done with what's called a metabolic cart, and I've if you are an exercise physiology lab wherever in the world, I can tell you that's a staple piece of machinery um, in every exercise physiology lab, and that's the metabolic heart to measure oxygen uptake. Great. Okay, so th this makes perfect sense. And so uh, how is the energy expenditure for anaerobic exercise typically estimated or measured? Well, this is the problem. <laughs> right. Um, it's, there is no gold standard. Everyone recognizes that if you're going to measure or estimate anaerobic, or aerobic energy expenditure, you're going to measure oxygen uptake. I, there's not a person I know who won't agree with that. 
anaerobic metabolism, however, how do we measure that? There is no universally agreed on way to do that. And so anybody who dabbles in this, including myself, um, is going to be controversial. And so what I've tried to do is just really get to the basics of energy expenditure and then using the, you know, the, the best tools that we have and realize that, hey, you know what, we're not measuring this directly. We're trying to come up with a reasonable estimate. Um, and that's where I am really right now. I mean, I, I'm, you know, my lab work is, is measuring strength, speed, and power stuff. But I'm, I look at myself, I tell my wife that I'm in the marketing phase of my career, you know, where it's really just trying to sell my ideas more than, you know, coming up with new ways to do all this stuff. Right. But anaerobic energy expenditure is tough to measure. And what I do is I measure blood lactic acid levels after very brief and intense activity. And that gives me a rough idea, anyway, of what the anaerobic contribution is. Um, the point I like to make with colleagues that disagree with that is if that is if you don't include an anaerobic energy expenditure component, then you're essentially saying the anaerobic energy component is zero, and that's where I have an issue with uh, some of my colleagues, if you will. Understood. So, uh, just to kind of summarize, calorie total energy expenditure for. Um, anaerobic exercise can kind of bro be broken into three components. One is the calories burned aerobically during exercise, right? That's number one. That's correct. Number two, number two is calories burned after exercise, which is this EPOC concept, excess post-exercise oxygen consumption, the kind of oxygen debt it was it used to be called, right? Right. That's correct. And then third is this, this really novel way of looking at it, which is what you've contributed, and I've never heard before. I've never heard at any fitness conference ever it is concept of this lactic acid contribution of exercise. Right. Okay, so it's this third one that really seems to be different from what a lot of other people uh, have done in the past. Yeah, if you look at um, and this, you know, I, I can't, I don't want to speak um, for other people, but, you know, I, 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 I try to grasp, you know, and I'm struggling with wrestling with why do people think the way they do, and that is, that you can take an anaerobic activity such as weightlifting. I mean, there's nothing more mainstream than that. And we, we know, you can open up any textbook on the subject, and you know that weightlifting is referred to as an anaerobic exercise. So how do we measure the energy expenditure of an activity that doesn't use oxygen? Why we hook you up to a metabolic cart and measure your oxygen consumption. And right. to me, that's... You know, I, you know, I went all the way, you know, eventually getting my Ph.D. through school, but I can remember professor after professor asking him that question. And, oh, it was, keep reading, Scott, keep reading, you know, and it's like, wait a minute, this, this doesn't make sense. But I, I think, you know, if I'm going back, why do people think the way they are? I think that the way scientists have started the origins of exercise physiology are pretty much all aerobic exercise. I mean, that's what it is. And so now many people are applying aerobic exercise concepts like long-distance running and cycling, and they're using what they found there and applying it to resistance training and weightlifting. And that's where I pretty much have drawn the line and, like, I am I'm not going to do that. We need to do something just a little bit better than that. We need to at least get a reasonable number, you know, on this anaerobic component. So that's what I've attempted to do. Great. This is really phenomenal. And uh, just just so we're clear, 
Um, let's, I guess, start talking a little bit about what the effect can actually be from uh, aerobic, aerobic exercise energy expenditure versus anaerobic exercise energy expenditure. And from what I've read, I mean, basically, you know, aerobic, you're burning a lot of calories during the workout, and then it's minimal after the workout. And uh, conversely, with anaerobic activity, you're not necessarily burning that much, um, that many calories during the anaerobic exercise, but after can actually be way more significant, especially when you take into account this lactic acid contribution of exercise. That's correct. What we're finding, you know, what I decided to do is most research that looks at weightlifting, you know, they'll take, uh, they'll, they might take pre-exercise measurements, and then they'll wait till all these sets and, and, and reps and everything else is done. You know, they'll do a complete workout, 45 minutes, maybe an hour or more of weightlifting, and then they'll take their measurements again. And what I've decided is, like, wait, we need to go back to the beginning. And, you know, maybe I'm just being a little too crazy here, but I'm like, you know what, let's just take this one set at a time instead of going through umpteen numbers of sets with different reps, different rest periods. There's so many variables here um, to deal with that let's just keep it simple. And so I just started doing single sets of bench press exercise, and I did two sets with another study. Then I did three sets, which I'm actually working on this summer, writing up the paper. And what we're finding is that after every single set, the largest contribution to energy expenditure is clearly covering, coming from the recovery component. And if it's a single set um, with muscular endurance type work, the largest component is actually the anaerobic energy component, followed by this excess post-oxygen component, and the lowest um, uh, denominator, if you will, of energy expenditure is exercise oxygen uptake, which for aerobic activity is the largest component. Right. So what I'm trying to get people to realize is, you know, when we look at things one set at a time, there really is quite a difference between how aerobic energy expenditure and anaerobic energy expenditure are compared. Great. And so, uh, you know, in the article... Um, so I'm going to post this, uh, you know, interview on an article. And in the article, I'm going to include the results from your misconceptions about aerobic and anaerobic exercise expenditure. I think it's pretty shocking, um, you know, the intermittent sprints versus the steady rate uh, walk. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's really impressive. I think it will kind of, uh, you know, surprise people in terms of how many calories are actually being burned total from anaerobic exercise and especially after um, you know, the, the exercise. I think it's great. And so that, that particular um, study, that, I did that study, Mark, a long time ago. And I know, when, I'm, when, I, when I was just trying to actually get the, the methods for this new one. So I, I wasn't actually right. collecting blood lactate back then. Um, I was using another method, assuming what anaerobic energy expenditure was by how much oxygen was not consumed. And the, I, I wouldn't so much agree with the numbers on that, but what it did do is paint a picture that we are possibly way off in terms of looking at the total energy expenditure of a weightlifting activity or a sprinting activity. So don't, don't get too hung up on the numbers on that particular study, but it clearly shows that, you know, if you're going to be doing really intense work, you're probably burning a lot more calories, if you will, than what we originally proposed. Right. Okay, that sounds, sounds perfect. And so a little, just to go a little bit uh, further along, so how long can metabolism be elevated after an intense bout of exercise, anaerobic exercise? What, what we do just to keep our model reasonable, um, we actually follow um, oxygen consumption after exercise, 
until it falls below what a standing resting oxygen uptake is. So we're finding that um, after a single set, depending on who the person is, recovery can last anywhere from, I don't know, four or five to 15 minutes or so. Um, what going into other people's research, however, when you start doing complete workouts, you know, workouts that last 45 minutes to over an hour or so, they're starting to see, or I'm starting to see from what reading other people's stuff that weightlifting or resistance training might actually result in a longer, you know, recovery than aerobic energy expenditure. The, the, the problem is it's really hard to compare the two. You know, I've, I've seen studies, for example, that followed a weightlifting routine where um, sets and reps were at 70% of a one repetition maximum. And then they looked at aerobic exercise that was 70% of maximal oxygen consumption. And, you know, as an exercise physiologist, I can imagine, okay, well, the numbers 70 match, but can you really compare in terms of intensity the maximal amount of top, um, strength output versus 70% of oxygen uptake? I don't think that's a legitimate comparison. So it's hard to look at the two, but even so, there seems to be something to resistance training that is not there with typical um, cardiovascular or aerobic work. Understood. And so, you know, some studies have shown, you know, your metabolism can be elevated by as much as 20% for up to 48 hours. I mean, does that number sound reasonable? I mean, I've even seen up to 72 hours. I mean, do those numbers seem reasonable? Yeah, that, that, that's quite high, actually. I mean, you get, you're starting to get 20% of resting metabolism. That's a lot. Um, my guess is, and this is where I'm, I'm a little confused. I, I can't answer the question. I'm, you know, you look at uh, um, each individual exercise component and, or excuse me, recovery component after each set. Now, is that traditional recovery or is that part of, or should we keep it part of the exercise oxygen uptake, which most people do, should I wait until all, everything is complete until I have um, exercise finished, absolutely done with, before I start measuring my recovery component? And then you start getting into protein synthesis and all this other stuff that might take place. I mean, some people are, you know, they're interested in muscular hypertrophy. You start laying down protein, you know, this takes energy. I mean, it takes energy to build proteins, and that might be the difference between, you know, aerobic exercise and anaerobic exercise in terms of this relatively large recovery component. Right, and I was actually just about to get to that in a second. Okay, that sounds great. And so a couple of things that I think are interesting when people think about, you know, energy expenditure, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is your heart rate. You know, if you got if you have a, a, a an elevated heart rate, then you're uh, you know burning excess calories, and that's really what it's all about. I mean, can you elaborate a little bit more on kind of the heart rate, how it may or may not help um, predict energy expenditure? Yeah, I you know it's again it goes back to this: we don't measure energy expenditure, we estimate it. So now, how do you estimate it? And now, different people do different things. You know, the best way most people would tell you. Again, for aerobic exercise, and that's where everybody starts, is oxygen uptake. Well, the fact of the matter is most people don't have access to a metabolic heart, so they can't do that. Well, that's, what's the next best way? Well, the next best way, again, for aerobic activity is heart rate. And then you can go down to a rating of perceived exertion. You know, that can measure oxygen uptake. I work with people that use pedometers 
to try to measure what so-called or estimate what energy expenditures. You can use physical activity questionnaires to measure this, if you will. Um, but this is <clears throat> this is, gets tricky because you could be, for example, um, doing hand grip exercise, which is not using a large muscle mass at all, but it'll get your heart rate going sky high if it's done right. Um, so I'm under the impression that you know it can help with an energy expenditure estimate, but it also can be misleading. You have to be careful. You know, I, I, to get my students laughing, or I hope to get them laughing, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll imagine you know, I have a, a plate full of you know, methamphetamines or something like that. And here, try these. What's it going to do to your heart rate? Okay, oh, yeah, it's going to elevate it. Okay, does that represent what your energy expenditure is right now? And the answer is, well, probably not. Right. So I could scare you and elevate your heart rate. You could be in the sun overheating and your heart rate's going to go high. Is it really increasing your energy expenditure? Probably not that much. But it helps. You know, it certainly helps. Great. And I guess another kind of component is some people are like, oh, you know what, as long as I sweat a lot, I'm burning a lot of calories. Can you um, maybe talk a little about about how that may or may not be helpful in terms of estimating uh, total energy expenditure? Yeah, well, energy expenditure is heat loss if you, if you uh, right. go back to the fundamentals. So if you're sweating, you're dissipating heat, um, and there's probably something to that. Now, if, uh, you, know, it, you give me an idea, although I, you know, I probably won't pursue it because it's difficult to determine what, how much water is, uh, is evaporating off a person, but you, you could probably use that as an estimate of energy expenditure. There probably wouldn't be a – you know, it's not going to be perfect, but uh, anything that helps, I'm for it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so I just remember, you know, one of my friends is like, you know what, I really don't like exercising. Why don't I just go in a sauna and sweat and try to, you know, get, get you know, burn extra calories that way. And so, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't follow that reasoning at all. <laughs> right. No, of course. And so I think there might be this misperception that, you know, just because you sweat, it means you're burning a lot of calories. Whereas I think, you know, the type of activity as we're discussing, you know, kind of the aerobic versus anaerobic, I mean, just because you're sweating a lot, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to burn the maximum amount of calories. Yeah, that's. I mean, if, if you're sweating because of activity, that's what I'm thinking. You know that. Yeah, that, yeah it might it might be some sort of a, an estimate of how uh, much energy you are expending. Or, but you know, if you're like you say, if you're sitting in a sauna doing nothing and you're sweating, I'm not I'm not buying that argument that sweating is related to energy expenditure. Got it. <laughs> All right. So um, uh, you talked about this briefly, and so. The concept of kind of muscle soreness and micro tears and how, you know, strength training intensely with heavier weights uh, can create this kind of effect that throws your body out of homeostasis and requires this kind of extra recovery component. And I mean, that's personally what I've found, you know, since I've been working out all my life is, you know, there's something going on, you know, after a very intense workout, my muscles are really sore you know, it might, it might help me burn a total of more calories after the workout. So could you talk a little bit more about this kind of, that kind of component? Yeah, this, I mean, you're, you're getting outside of my range of, of um, interest, if you will, in, a certain, in terms of my research. But, you know, clearly if you're working muscle to the point where, you know, you're causing um, damage at the microscopic level, um, then you're certainly going to result, it's going to take energy to repair that. And that's what I was getting you know, at to earlier. If you're, if you're really working hard and laying down, you know, breaking proteins and laying down new proteins, that is most certainly um, 
going to be raising your energy expenditure. There's a uh, obviously uh, I like to show things when I give talks, and you look at the energy components of living, if you will, you know, daily life and just uh, during the day rather resting, um, increased energy component after eating, um, increased energy component for exercise and recovery. And there's also medical issues, if you will, that increase energy expenditure. And the, the largest one is, is burns. So if, you have, if you're a burn victim, you can literally double your resting metabolic rate with severe burns. And the reason why is, you know, you look at your skin, which is mostly protein. You're laying down new protein. Your nutritional demands are literally off the chart. And so when get back into working skeletal muscle. If you've damaged protein and you have to lay down new protein, you're most certainly going to be increasing energy expenditure. <clears throat> now, whether you need to work out to the point where you're actually damaging muscle, um, that's a, I guess that's another issue. Right. Okay, great. And so uh, kind of turning, and by the way, how are we on time? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Great. Okay, so in terms of body composition, so we've kind of talked about, uh, you know, energy expenditure and kind of this afterburn effect. So in terms of body composition, does uh, high-intensity anaerobic exercise burn more fat than traditional cardio for a given period? I mean, is that an accurate, I mean, it, is that, that's a question for you. Yeah, uh, here's my answer, yes. Okay. Um, and this is, uh, this is where I think, um, you, you, certainly within my lifetime, we've had to change the way we think about things. You know, I'll give you another example before we get back on this, is that we used to think that in order to be healthy, you had to be fit. And now we realize that you don't necessarily have to be fit, but you have to be physically active in order to get health benefits. Now, similar thinking was that if you wanted to burn fat, you would have to do long, slow distance activity because that's going to burn the most fat. And we're starting to realize now that, in fact, it's the other way around, that during really brief, intense bouts, intermittent bouts of strength, speed, and power-related stuff, I'm under the impression you can burn even more fat. And the reason why is that when you start – there was a study I saw years ago, and I still quote it, and they were doing like these six-second bursts of all-out cycling, you know, and it was like 10, 15 sets of this, and they found like this unheard of amount of free fatty acids that were broken down from fat stores within the muscle, and it's like, it asks the question or begs the question, why during an anaerobic activity that utilizes, clearly utilizes glucose as a fuel, why is so much fat being broken down? And the answer appears to be, well, the exercise component is six seconds long, and that's using glucose. But however long the recovery component is, that's when you're burning fat. And if you add all these intermittent periods together, you're probably, and, and, and the, the rationale that I use to determine energy expenditure, I literally assume that during the recovery from strength, speed, and power-related stuff, you're primarily burning lactate and fatty acids. And that's where um, the body composition stuff comes in. If you if you want to if you want to you know lose weight, lose body fat, get ripped. I'm under the impression that intermittent bursts of high intensity activity followed by rest periods that's the way to do it. And people like you, you know, the anecdotal stuff where you're actually out there working with people, you know, the trainers that I know, they're the ones who tell me that's if, if you want somebody to lose body fat, that's the way to do it. Great. And so 
I think that was extremely well said. And, you know, I have here in my notes to talk about the fat burning zone. I feel like you kind of debunked it already, but I was hoping you could kind of talk about this concept of the fat burning zone and how it might be somewhat misleading for consumers. Yeah, I, you know, there's some truth to it. Um, don't get me wrong. But the problem is, is that, you know, in order to get what, you know, the, what's also known as a crossover, whenever you start or start exercising, there's my New England coming out, whenever you start exercising, um, you're predominantly burning carbohydrates. And then if it's a low-intensity activity, at some point you're going to cross over to, to less carbohydrates and more fat. And that, from what I've seen, occurs maybe 20, 30 minutes into a long, slow-distance type of a workout. Um, now, to, in order to do that, you have to be at moderate to low intensity. So, yeah, you're burning calories, but you're not burning, I don't think, to the extent where if you were, you know, really intense, um, brief bouts of work output, I think that's what really drives the total energy expenditure up. And if you really add all the components together of exercise and recovery, you know, what we're finding is that the recovery energy expenditure clearly outweighs everything else in terms of caloric cost. And so if you're predominantly burning fat during that time period, that might be the better one for body composition. And let's put it this way. You don't, you don't have to run for an hour or so, your half an hour to an hour, before you start utilizing more fat, if you will. Here you can do it within minutes, you know, seconds maybe. Who knows? Right. I mean, that's really, I mean, this is really powerful stuff. I think, you know, many of these major organizations out there, these health organizations are kind of promoting this, you know, slow cardio concept, whereas, you know, Americans are obviously time-strapped. They don't have enough time, and I feel like, you know, promoting this type of research can be helpful. And it's like, you know what, you don't need to spend that much time. I mean, even 10 minutes yep. could be very helpful. Yeah, and it's what you say is true. And, and again, I try to search for, you know, why is that? But you, and I think the answer really is that, you know, up, I'll, be, I'll be 50 years old in November. So, I mean, I started this a long time ago. I, I look back at, you know, in the, in the 70s, um, in high school, in the early 80s, in college, and I was always taught about aerobic activity. No, nothing in the textbook, in textbooks considered weightlifting or anything like that. And so, you know, now... We're realizing that it's different, but, you know, who are the professors, if you will, that are teaching today's youth, you know? And it's the exercise physiologists that were taught all about aerobic activity. So as, as an example, I just went to a, a conference, the American College of Sports Medicine, and there was a guy at a school in Wisconsin, and, and he called me about my research techniques, and he wanted to apply it to uh, kettleball training, uh, what's the man makers or something like that? That's what he was doing, or kettlebell swings or something. So we had a nice conversation, and I'm all happy, like, oh, yeah, good, I got another guy who's, who's going to use my techniques. And then when he shows up at the conference, he really ditched everything and did it all traditional. Um, I, I didn't get a chance to talk to him, but a buddy of mine did. And he was saying that, you know, he was kind of disappointed. Maybe he should have listened to me. And it's funny, the chair of this guy's department who he works with is a long-distance runner, or used to be. You know? And, and his, he told that guy, no, you, that's not the way to do it. And I just, I just got a good laugh out of that, you know, because I go, that, that, it sort of just goes along with my thinking here, you know, where you have, you know, essentially exercise physiologists that are a big family unit of, distance runners and distance cyclists, and they are applying what they learned 
to weightlifting today. And what we're finding out now, obviously enough, is is different. I think. Wow, that, I mean, that's. I think that's a really interesting um, kind of anecdote, and it sounds plausible to me. Um, you know, especially given that I've been to all these fitness conferences and I've seen it firsthand. Uh, and so I, I would hope to kind of talk a little bit more about the practical applications. And you started to kind of touch upon it in that last answer. And so, uh, does intense strength training create a greater afterburn effect than this intense anaerobic cardio exercise like sprinting, or is it kind of comparable? Do you think? Yeah, I, you know, I, I can't answer that now because we, we we just right. don't know. But my my guess would be that yeah, it would be comparable. You know, that if you want. Let's put it this way. If you want body composition changes with exercise, um, the first thing I would think of is some type of intermittent, you know, interval training, something along those lines, weightlifting, you know, something along, but it would be muscular endurance. I wouldn't use, you know, like powerlifting, for example, to create body composition changes. And And then another thing I always tell people, and, you know, I'm not a nutritionist, obviously enough, but I know a little bit about it. And if you really were to come to me and wanted to lose weight, and we, we made a list of ten things. One through seven of them would be dietary, you know, watching what you eat. Right. And then eight, right. nine, and ten would be exercise. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree more, and that's, you know, certainly what I found myself and with all of my kind of training clients. Um, and do you have an opinion on full-body workouts versus body parts, but in terms of creating, uh, you know, this afterburn effect? Yeah, I, mean, I don't know, and we're, we're just, you know, so rudimentary with all this. Um, and this is, I also tell people, I'm, I'm not a trainer. You're the trainer, you know. I mean, I, I use exercise as a tool to study physiology or as a model to study physiology. So I, I don't train people, but, you know, there are certainly concepts involved with, you know, I, I know recovery is very important, for example. So if you're doing whole body stuff, I'm not so sure you should be doing it every day. Right. Um, but you can mix and match muscle groups and do it all week long. You know, of course. That's a, yeah. That that makes perfect sense. And uh, and as you know, probably Mark, there's you know your people respond differently. So I think that's where the you know the, the better personal trainers are, where they really make you know independent programs for each that are tailor made, if you will, for each and every person. That's where you know the expertise from the trainer comes in. And that's exactly. I mean, that's personally what we do with you know, with, with my training and nutrition practices, you know, some people respond really well to full body workouts. Uh, some people get yep. completely nauseous, you know, yep. and it doesn't work. So, yep. uh, you know, and there are, and there are ways, if you will, to trick, I mean, you get someone in there and who, who you want them to do high intensity stuff, but you, obviously you have to be very careful with them. Well, you, you, there are ways that you can get around that, you know, I mean, you could do really brief stuff, two or three seconds long and then have them do a long recovery. Um, it, again, it's, 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 I, I teach my classes. If you're going to go out there and train, you know, it's the creativity part that's really going to separate you out from other people, you know, in your profession. Safety, obviously, comes in there as well, but you have to be creative. You guys are artists in a sense, you know? Right, and, and so you hit upon something I think is like a core component to all of this is like, you know what, there are all these programs out there that are like super intense and extreme, like, you know, P90X and Insanity, yep. and it's like, six to seven times a week, it's like absolutely crazy. And so the reality is most people, um, you know, number one, either can't do that or they probably shouldn't do it because, you know, if you haven't worked out in six months, I mean, how can you apply your research, you know, which is saying, okay, do this really high-intensity exercise. I mean, how do you do that? I mean, for me, what I've done is, 
started out with this kind of progression where, you know, we don't even do any very high-intensity stuff for probably the first month. Um, yep. You know, maybe maybe three weeks in or, or a month in. So I'm kind of curious how you see, you know, your research benefiting kind of the general population and people who might not be in good shape. Um, I, th- I think your approach, obviously, is to get them into shape right. before right. they really start working out. I mean, that's, that's the approach to do it. Um, but I also think that, you know, depending on what a person's needs are, I mean, if uh, um, that's what's going to have application for what I do. And, again, you know, if you want body composition changes and you want an exercise program designed for that, um, I'm more convinced than ever it should be, you know, strength, speed, power-related stuff that uses large muscle groups. That's going to burn the most calories. You know, what we're finding here, we, you know, we, we built this little device in our, we had the engineering department build a little device in our lab, and so we're actually able to measure work output. And what we're finding is that, you know, the, the bottom level, and this is common sense, you don't even need science to, to, to show that this is accurate, but, you know, the more work you do, the greater your energy expenditure is. And what we found is the most work that can be done is the least amount of weight for the most repetitions, muscular endurance stuff. So you use large muscle groups like your legs, let's say sprinting, you're doing 40-yard sprints or something, um, that's as much energy expenditure as, as you're going to get, for sure. And it will most definitely, over time, result in body composition changes. Great. Well, listen, um, I guess I have one more question, which is, I mean, anything else you would like to add that we didn't cover uh, that you think is important? Um, no, you know, other than the fact that we have uh, a long way to go, you know, before we understand this, and that there are times when it's, it's almost – you know, for me, from a scientific standpoint, it's, it's almost overwhelming because you know, we're finding out that isotonic contractions are different than isometric, that are different from isokinetic, and then you add different uh, one repetition maximum or t- ten repetition maximum, how much exercise time is involved, number of reps, the number of sets, the number of um, rest periods in between sets. I mean, all these can be manipulated to the point where it's not – cohesive right now. You know what I mean? It doesn't make sense. It's just sometimes I look at everything that I've done so far and like, man, am I, <laughs> can I make sense of all of this? You know what I mean? And that's why I wanted to start from the very beginning. But we have a long ways to go. There's no doubt about before we before we find the perfect exercise program, if you will. And the truth of the matter is there's probably not one perfect program. There's probably dozens of perfect programs. And again, it all goes down to you know, the independence of the person that's involved, what's actually best for them. So the, the bottom line, though, I think, though, Mark, and, and again, from anecdotal evidence that I've heard from you and others, is that um, when you really start doing the intermittent large muscle group, high-intensity type exercise, uh, that's when people start getting into these, you know, ripped, cut, nice body composition adjustments. That is really great. Again, I want to thank you so much for your time. I think, uh, you know, the research you're doing is really uh, amazing and extremely helpful. Uh, you know, I'm going to tr- certainly do my best to try to promote it. And, yeah, thank you. Uh, and, again, I really want to thank you for your time, and, and certainly let me know if there's any way I can be helpful. All right. Will do, Mark. If you need anything, just uh, you got my email address. and give me a, give me a mail. <laughs> great. Thanks so much for your, for your time. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye.